This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk with authors of music books, bios, histories, criticism. I'm your host, Steve J, and today's guest is James Cook, the author of Memory Songs, a personal journey into the music that shaped the 90s. Welcome, James. Hi, Steve. Thank you for inviting me. Well, your book, Memory Songs, is a wonderful read. I think everybody who is a music fan can get something out of this and also really reflect upon it and understand you know, what's happening and that it happened to them at some point. I thought the title might be actually a psychology term, but I, I didn't turn up anything in the internet search, so I'm going to assume that's your phrase. No, you're right. I, I came up with the phrase. It's my um, coinage, as it were. It wasn't the original title for the book. The original title was Late Star Memories, which was from was a cut-up from an old set list. My brother, Jude, twin brother, who I formed my old band with, Flamingos, who I also write about in the book, he read the first chapter that was talking about You Only Live Twice as a memory song. And he said, why don't you use that as the title for the book? Snappy title. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I came up with the title. So memory songs, can you fill our listeners in as to what that means? You have a definition in your book that was just so perfect. It really resonated with me. A memory song is more than just a song that conjures up a memory, because any, any old song can do that. What it is, it's, I guess it's a piece of music that you might discover, you know, early on in your life at school or in your teenage years. And then you sort of move away from it and then you rediscover it again, maybe in your 20s. Then you come back to it again in your 30s, maybe. And then you go away and come back in your 40s. So all the time you're building up. It's like an old master canvas. You're getting these layers and layers of your life painted over and over again. But somewhere inside the song is that first connection where you first heard it that can't be undone. And um it's not it, often it can be quite hard to get back to that first connection because you know you spent your whole first year at college caning this song but but it's there somewhere if you listen to it with one ear as it were if you know what i mean yeah it's some it's like a piece of the sort of mental furniture that you you carry through your life 
So that's an interesting point in that, you know, even though you carry that song through your different generational life, it doesn't change. You know, it may adapt, but the original memory is still underlying everything. Well, this is why it's such an interesting thing, because uh, the song stays the same, the song remains the same, and, uh, but you change. You know, but also your perception of the song changes as well. It's a very interesting thing. The same thing happens with films, with movies, I find. You know, memory films, that could be the sequel. So it's important also to recognize, I think, that, you know, memory songs aren't necessarily the first tune you hear from an artist or a band, correct? It's just one that has a resonance somewhere down the line. Yeah, it doesn't have to be the first tune. It sometimes is the first tune because that's the first time you connect with the artist but it could be it could be anything it has to have a certain resonance to something that happens in your life or something that is there in the lyric or something that that is, becomes i mean we don't take all the, the music that we listen to when we're younger sort of throughout our whole life we don't you know we leave some of it behind but those special songs that have a resonance you will sort of keep with you yeah, and it's in kind of an instant recall of a time and place. We all have that song, especially a, maybe even a singular song where rock and roll kind of changed your life. What song that was, where you were, how old you were. Yeah, and this is this. Is, I mean, there are only two things really. There's, there's music and the sense of smell that can that, that can take us back in that little time machine to that to a place 30 years ago in a very vivid sense. It's um, a very strange experience when it happens. You know, it seems to me that uh, every every really hardcore music fan, there's a highly influential guide or somebody who turned them on to new music when they were young. In your book, you call them teachers. And one of your early ones was a guy named Duke. I'm sure there are others. How important are these people in shaping musical tastes and memory songs? Very important. Yeah, the, the teachers, the, um, the, the I mean, they usually, usually, if you're at that impressionable age, you know, 15 or 16, it's usually someone a year or a couple of years older than you often a, a, an older sibling and my brother and I we didn't have that we were we were twins uh, so we had to look outside and it's it's often you know a school friend and Duke was someone he was the guy with the fabulous record collection the, the cool record collection but he sort of took it one further he had a totally eclectic taste that wasn't an affectation at all so he had he had Hanoi Rocks next to the Smiths he had Crass next to Elkie Brooks. I mean, it was just it was just what he liked. Um, and it was fascinating. And it was a complete eye-opening moment to all these different artists and different worlds, uh, which seemed very much tied in with, at that age, wanting to go on to the next step of your life. And this is adult sophistication was like, you know, going to gigs. If, if at that age you weren't allowed to go to gigs as I was. You know, so the, these teachers are really important and you put, put a, a great deal of store in in their, you know, their their record collection is the canon. They're, you know, your uh, all the great stuff there that that you that you hadn't heard about. You know, I'm wondering as you were talking about this, I'm wondering what the opposite of that is because I think we've also had um, a bunch of friends who listen to music that you react negatively to and it drives you. You know, I know my thing was punk rock, which was a reaction to kind of a lot of the bloated '70s excess that my friends were listening to. And I just couldn't stand it. So it moved me into another genre. And you kind of have to find a guide there. And at the time, things were very polarized in the 80s. You know, it was, it, you could you had to, it was a political choice almost who you listened to. To find these guides or teachers would be very useful. And often they just, they, they it wasn't premeditated. They would just arrive. You know, I met Duke and it was a chance meeting completely. But that's how things just seem to happen at that age. They just sort of tumble out of, out of the air, you know. 
And one of the things I noticed with some of your memory songs, you have to have this kind of broad palette, I think, both as a musician and then as you get older, you start to listen to things, you know, that you wouldn't have listened, jazz singers or, or, or things like that, that maybe your parents listened to. But your list was pretty impressive. So how about we play a little memory song game and I'm going to name an artist and a song. And if you want to help our listeners get inside your book, maybe you can just give us a, a short synopsis of your memory of that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, let's start with one that you mentioned. And uh, it was, I know from your book, it was a very formative person and it was kind of an oddball. Although I will say that I can name most of that music, but John Barry. John Barry, yeah, composer of the Bond themes. I think what it was, for a start, everyone almost probably in the world has seen a Bond film. So his music was just so, had such a, a reach. If you watch a Bond film on the telly as a kid, there's the music, there's John Barry's music. So with John Barry, it was the song You Only Live Twice. And uh, it was a Sunday night and got school tomorrow. This incredible film comes on, very old film for a 10-year-old to be watching. After the pre-credit comes the titles and the title song, You Only Live Twice. And it's just an incredible piece of music. You've got Nancy Sinatra's vocal against these mountains and sunsets and volcanoes of the visuals. And the actual sound of the record was very strange as well. It was, I think there was some very speed or something going on there. It was just an unforgettable first piece of music from, from John Barry. And it's interesting, too, because part of your memory is formed by the visuals that you're watching, which at that age, and, and, and especially Bond films, and especially for boys of a certain age, I can, I can recall all those Bond films in the opening scenes. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was quite a risque film to be watching, really, as a 10-year-old. Uh, I think they still are, you know. But also the fact that, you know, there are other things, is, is the, the, the situation. I mean, I remember I was, you know, sitting on some scatter cushions, which dates it very much to the late 70s, eating a nice lolly. You know, you've been allowed to stay up and watch TV by your parents. It's a big moment. It's a bit, and, and, and Bond on TV at that time was a, was a big deal. You couldn't, it, it was pre-video. You had to, to catch these things when they came out. All right, great films, great films. Uh, how about Led Zeppelin, 10 Years Gone? That's kind of an odd choice. Yeah, ten, well, this was Led Zeppelin. It was Again, you have to picture the year that I was listening to Led Zeppelin, which is 1982. Uh, you know, it was all soft sell, ABC, Duran Duran were coming up. It was all new pop. And there's me with a, a snake belt that I bought on the market and some Dunlop sneakers and long hair going down to buy this record on a Saturday afternoon. And that was my memory from that, that song was just getting, getting the record back. And it just being this sort of unquenchable source of pleasure, the physical graffiti, the, the, the album uh, with 10 years gone on it, but it's kind of condemned me to a year or more of, of, of not having a girlfriend. You know, I had my Zep album, you know, so, uh, that's that's a, a remarkable memory and a uh, and quite a, a sharing there. Um, uh, so David Bowie, Gene Genie, that's an interesting choice because I think you know my memory song was uh, Five Years because it opened up Ziggy Stardust and you know one of my musical guides put that on and that song is just so bleak. But Gene Genie, you know, that's in kind of the middle of his career and on a great album, Aladdin Sane. What about that song? Was it that that hit you? 
it, it was the lyrics. I mean, you just mentioned five years, which is fascinating because I think that's Bowie's best lyric, and it is bleak, but it's just at that point where he was the best lyric writer in the country, I think, easily. And Gene Genie was about the lyrics as well because it was setting out a sort of big city world, you know, you for me in a, in a small town, and he's talking about the bright lights and all sorts of, you know, cracked actors and bars and neon and and this it was just so exciting and coupled with the sound of the record which was so exciting so this the memory for this is a bunch of albums that duke my friend teacher lent to me and i saw every morning before school i would put on the gene genie just as a sort of almost as a almost for medicinal reasons you know just to get through the day and that's where the gene genie came in it's funny, my, my memory of David Bowie was running for my life because I was afraid of getting beat up because everybody else was listening to, you know, I don't know, Leonard Skinner. And... <laughs> That's a very important point because they were similar. I, didn't, I never had to run for my life, I think, but it was still that transgressive thing that Bowie was doing that would set you apart as being an outsider outside the mainstream. But which was also, it was quite attractive, but it was a dangerous thing as well. So, so that, that was part of it, the appeal. The next one that I found interesting is uh, This Is The Sea by The Water Boys. I came to them probably a little later than that. I knew those songs, but it was Fisherman Blues that really got me. But uh, This Is The Sea, you talk about quite eloquently, you know, and lyrically in the production. I think everything that went into that song hit you. I think this is, I call it the ultimate memory song because of the premise in the lyrics, which was that was the river, this is the sea. The song sort of works at any given point in your life, sort of like a mathematical formula that applies to every sort of new situation because we're always moving on. We're always in a new situation, a new chapter. And this particular song, again, hit me at, I think I was 17 or something, first week of, of a new term. You know, it was becoming autumn and just sitting and listening to it with a cup of tea and a, a single cigarette. You used to be able to buy single cigarettes back. I had a, a single cigarette. This is really dating it now in an empty cassette box and taking out this cigarette, smoking it and listening to This Is The Sea, the, the last song on, on, the, the, on the album, the same name. So, yeah, incredible um, moment. Very specific memory there. So... I'm going to date myself a little bit, but also point to you as a guide, because this next one was a band that perhaps I had heard the name. And uh, the Triffids, Stolen Property, you talk very highly of that song. So, of course, I went to Spotify and listened to it and probably wasn't as blown away as you are. But I think it's a, probably a place and time, as you said. So what, what about that song that resonated? Definitely a time and place thing. Uh, I think what it was, was the song is about the singer's unrequited love. He's, he's just had a breakup. It's a very dramatic song. And I remember listening to this age, again, 17, 18, sitting on, there's a hill called Windmill Hill in Hitchin that overlooks the whole town. And it's where all the boys would gather and you'd sit there and you'd have your shades on smoking your Marlboros and drinking from cans of Coke. You'd have songs on the tape recorder and you were basically trying to, to attract girls. You know, you were hoping that they would come over. Posing, we were posers. Um, and, uh, and that's the first time I heard this song and I'd had a, a sort of teenage breakup myself. And it really, it really resonated. But very quickly, just further from that, they were an incredible live band, and I saw them live a lot of times. On their night, they were as good a live band as any band, and this was a, always a, a high point in the set, an incredible, incredible group and an incredible song. So it sounds like you survived the girlfriendless Led Zeppelin stages and then moved on to a breakup in, in high school and onto the Triffids. <laughs> 
there was a brief window and then it went all went wrong again i seem to remember but yeah just in time for the, this record the Trippets record to hit me last one and it's one that i'm i was unfamiliar with but there i think it was their original album cover struck me as a visual person as a music art director uh pulp common people Yet by this time, I'd moved to London and was making records with my brother. So it was a, it, we were still fans, but it was coming to it with a slightly different. They were contemporaries, you know, and we were the band we were in was a very, very overall band. You know, we were bystanders, but they were also in a way the competition. And I saw this; it appeared as a sort of fully formed pop culture moment because I hadn't heard it on the radio. And it, we're on top of the pops at number two. So I saw you saw the visuals, you saw the performer Jarvis Cockett, and I heard heard the song at the same time so it was a bit like that Starman moment that previous generation had had when they saw David Bowie and it was just so obvious that, they, that it was beyond the scope of any other songwriter operating at the time and it became in the UK at least the, the song of the summer you know that zeitgeist song that, that is everywhere. Well speaking of songwriting scope you called Kurt Cobain's song All Apologies the last real honest song can you expand on that? Within memory songs, I, I kind of, I, uh, quite a lot of it, not dissing Nirvana, but sort of, I didn't get them at all. They were just, they were just another sort of plaid shirt wearing festival group. I just didn't get, I, I, I know I've been listening to David Bowie and Pulp and all those sort of people and Swayed later. And I didn't get it until a year after Cobain had died, which is obviously too late. And it was that song, All Apologies, that drew me in. And it, the, the remark, the last great honest song, actually came from Ian McCulloch of Echo and the Bunnymen. And I think it, that sums the song up. What what he managed to, what Cobain managed to do was transmit this sort of honesty, a directness, uh, but also, you know, having, being an amazingly uh, original songwriter at the same time. So my sort of conversion happened sort of over this period of time. And I still I still think he, he's, he's probably the only songwriter of the 90s that you properly use the, the, the term genius about. That's true. And, you know, I think one of the things that shows how a song stands the test of time is, you know, when other people can cover it and it still has that hard hitting emotion. I, I remember Sinead O'Connor's version of that. And, I, you know, it's, I just thought it was wonderful. I haven't I haven't heard. I have to check that out, actually. It's really good. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. 
So I'm going through your book and uh, I'm reading and I'm waiting for you to find The Clash and uh, probably one of my favorite bands and the most influential. And finally you do in 88, 89, something like that with the story of The Clash compilation. You'd moved to London, were working, just kind of the side gig and The Clash kind of formed a, a soundtrack of your then life, correct? That was right. Yeah, The Clash had been around in the early 80s. They were still making records. I mean, it's hard to give a sense of, I think it's like that thing that there's nothing as nothing more unfashionable as, as what's been just previously has been fashionable. So they were completely out of favour and, and they were sort of yesterday's news in a way. I'd missed out totally on them and I couldn't, I knew a few people who, The Clash were their band, their sort of property. And then in 88, as you say, they CBS released Story of The Clash volume one uh, with that amazing in cover image of joe strummer doing his sort of gene vincent and the, the other guys next to him the sort of four horsemen look incredible cover and the music was extremely diverse and kind of it's that if you can imagine that that first the first your first job you know your first kind of kind of crap jobs really there they were there were temp agencies you could go to in london they, they would give me these sort of clerical jobs in accountants offices and having the clash having you know there's i think it's from the magnificent seven that line about cold water on the face wakes you up to this awful place getting up in the morning and going to a job that you hate and especially if you're starting to realize you're not the sort of nine to five guy which i was at that time <laughs> It had a huge resonance, yeah. And London as well. That's the thing that they they had this this sense of the diversity of London, so that there was, there was they were using reggae and ska and dub and some traditional Irish elements and you know all this stuff was, was just this was the, the excitement of, of London for me encapsulated in the Clash at that time. You mentioned uh, the, the album cover for that record, and I'm just curious what you think that plays the graphics uh, for Memory Songs because that's usually the first thing you you notice, right? Hugely, I, and I, I, I don't think I'm alone on this, but not everyone feels that way. There's, there's a section in, in Memory Songs when I start talking about how the music, how the graphic, it colours how we hear the music. Now, and it might just be me, but I think with an album like Revolver by the Beatles, all the, the songs are very sort of monochrome, black and white vignette. Or a, an album like U2's The Unforgettable Fire, that purple, you know, that colour seems to kind of seep into the music somehow. I think that the cover images are so important and which, which is something we've lost massively now i think with music just being digital information and, and being the size of your thumbnail is loses a little power is that as well <laughs> well I'm, I'm guessing you could tell by like the damned's first album cover or even london calling that this wasn't your your mother's music anymore absolutely absolutely you know and they, these, these images were powerful and exciting and shocking sometimes and at such a, a golden age really of graphic design and, and art it's completely lost now which is such a shame i agree so it's also about this time when you and you and your twin brother you mentioned and you'd been playing together and learning things as young kids but about this time you really start to decide we're going to go for it and you write and record in earnest i'm wondering what you were listening to then that's a very good question because the, the, at the time in the UK, you just had really one radio station, Radio 1. And, you know, apart from your record collection, that was all there was. So, it, 
you just bombarded by a huge amount of rubbish, but also a huge amount of, of good stuff. If I think back to that time, there were uh, there was Prince, there was Madonna, and in the particular year that I went to move to London, there were a lot of pirate radio stations, which is the only alternative, playing lots of acid house. That's what I was listening to really at the time, is what was available, what we were given really. Interesting. You know, now it seems that you can consume music from anywhere and everywhere at any time, but I'm not sure that it means as much. Exactly. I mean, this is, again, something I touch on in in the book. It's because I think it's become cheapened now in a way that we can access it at at a couple of clicks. And it's just there, you know, it's, it's, it's not an original idea, really. But the fact that you had to get out of the house, get on a bus and go and buy the record or sort of, you know, crouch by your radio all day waiting for this song you just heard 30 seconds of uh, to, to be played again you know you didn't know who the artist was that that was quite exciting frustrating and time consuming but um again something that's that's been lost well people don't really have an investment in it you know i i make the analogy that they rent music now through spotify they don't really buy it and and go out and you know those sessions where you sit with your friend and pass the album cover around in a circle and look at both sides and flip it over and just spend hours doing that. Absolutely, and I think this this must cheapen it in some way. I mean, I can't speak for. I mean, I've got I have I have friends now with um, kids who are sort of university age, and I asked, does, does it mean does music mean the same to them? And they say, well, it sort of does and it doesn't. It's it's changed. You know, the, a friend of mine has a has a son who says, you know, has to listen to a piece of music every time. Uh, he goes out which is what we used to do but you know it's almost there are a lot of other things they can spend their money on you know it's it's lost its importance which 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 is a shame but but you know i can't i can't speak for i might be speaking totally out of line here for 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 a 19 year old now who's completely obsessed with 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 a particular artist i do think they still exist they must exist and 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 again i say you know i don't that particular time is their time you know, and you shouldn't be. I didn't want to sound like in the book, like you know, some old hippie banging on about the sixties. But being, you know, you should have been there, man. You know, it was, it's, it was because it's like, well, no, we had the Water Boys and Echo and the Bunnymen and, and the Smiths and Cocteau Twins. You know. So, do you do you have a, you must have a, a special or a favorite memory song that you wrote? Um, there's a couple, yeah. There's one called Winter that made it onto the Flamingo's first album, and I wrote that in a in a, in a freezing bed sit with no. There was no sense of a record deal being on the on the table, so that was nice to have that on a record eventually. And the other is a song called Teenage Emergency, which again appeared, and it was written again in another bed sit in another unswinging part of London. But at that point, we had a manager, so there was a chance of it coming out and it, and it did eventually appear on the album but that was the first record that i ever heard being played on the radio and that was a memory you know an incredible hearing something that you'd written coming through coming through the radio i was going to ask about that what's the difference between hearing your own music for the first time on the radio and then hearing a song that just makes you stand up and take notice or is it the same it's completely different. It's when you hear your own music, you, you're hearing the rec- the recording studio, and you're thinking, "Oh, I could have done that a bit better." You know, I could have sung that a bit better. Back then, it was exciting because Rager had this reach. He knew it was going out to to millions of people. Whereas I don't think that happens now. When you hear another artist, it can be immediate. It can be sort of love at first sight. 
often I, I found that this is a, this is an odd thing to say, but I really took against an artist. I hated certain artists that I'd later come to love, and I think this is because if something's so new or so has such a strong flavor it happened later when i first heard pixies and i i just hated them uh but then i, I then i came round and so so now i know that if i if i start off hating an artist it actually might be a good sign you know careful there though but, but pixies are a boston band and that's where we're based so we'll uh we'll let you slide on that one so we're talking uh with james cook the author of memory songs and you know, I, I want to again congratulate you on your book and uh, urge everyone to read it. It really connects with people, and I think that's what musicians try and do and do in your memories and most people's memory song. And it's a really good read that I think most people will connect to, and as I did, just go through it and kind of go back through the past and your music experience. So I want to thank you for coming on, James. And what's next for you? Uh, another book, second book, it covers the link between music and autism. My daughter's autistic. And it is to be published April next year, April 2020, by Blink. Well, that's a, um, a story that's getting a lot of press as I see it. I have friends with autistic children as well, and, and music plays a huge role in that. So maybe we can have you back on when that's That would be out. fabulous. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. Bye now. I'd like to thank our guest, James Cook. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. We'd appreciate it, and so would James. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcast episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive and All Music Books Podcast.